Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I'm excited to be recording another episode with y'all. Today, of course, I'm bringing back a good friend of the podcast, someone who's been a repeat guest, Dr. Christina Rossetti, and she's going to talk about an article that she just published in Dialogue, which, of course, is a Mormon historical and cultural publication that I respect that you should all support. Christina's a fantastic writer. She's also a great friend of mine. We've been on many adventures together. And for those who aren't aware, Christina is not a Mormon. She actually is Catholic and she studies Mormonism. She's a religious studies scholar. She's also a professor of humanities at Utah Tech in Southern Utah. She's also a co-adventurer with me. We've um, studied many things together and been on many adventures. So it's a delight to have her back on talking about this crazy, amazing article that she wrote. Before we get into the interview, I want to give some trigger warnings. Now, I know the word trigger warning is like so saturated in our discourse that like it doesn't even mean anything anymore. And, you know, people attribute it to woke culture or whatever you wherever you stand. That's your business. Uh, for me, this actually really needs a trigger warning because, you know, I've been I've been really open with this podcast. I've been open about my struggles in the Mormon community because I feel like that vulnerability was something that I was not given growing up in, as a mainstream Mormon girl in the church. And that vulnerability from other people was what I needed. Honesty was what I needed. And so I've been vulnerable, sometimes too vulnerable online. I've had to learn boundaries over the years as well. But one thing I've been very open about talking about is uh, my eating disorder. I think, gosh, like one of the very first interviews I did with Mormon Stories years and years back was me talking about my struggle with eating disorders. Uh, it's something that I have battled since I was 17. And, I, you know, I keep trying to figure out which adjectives I want to use here, like battled and struggled and survived, all these things. There's not a great word to frame it because it is so discursive and there's so many different relationships I've had with my body over over this time, you know. And as I'm getting older, I'm starting to really become more comfortable in my own skin. Uh, I've struggled with body dysmorphia for a very, very long time. And for those who aren't aware of what that is, it's, um, I guess, the reality of like how others see me versus how I see myself is not something I've ever been able to really integrate and sync up. Like uh, how I see myself is not how other people see me. And it's been a really painful thing for me. But uh, the reason I'm bringing all of this up is today we're going to be talking about something that is falling squarely in what I think is the eating disorder camp. We're going to be talking about body issues, fasting, extreme fasting in a religious context. But it's really complicated for me because as Christina is going to frame this story of religious fast in, in a specific fundamentalist group, she is doing so as a religious scholar in the context of other, you know, religious examples, r- female mystics, women mystics over over time. But it's hard for me to not see this as extreme religiosity, scrupulosity, whatever you want to call it. And it mirrors some of my uh, control issues with an eating disorder. And so that's why there's a trigger warning for those who struggle with disordered eating. As you know, these triggers like actually be triggers. <laughs> it's not like a woke word. There are certain things when I was in my sickest part of my disorder where my, you know, I call it my anorexic brain, where if people would say things, certain things, they would become a trigger and they would really compound my behavior. Some of those things are numbers. This is just uh, to tell you that we're not going to talk very much about like calories or 
how much somebody weighs or something like that. But we are going to be talking about food restriction and fasting. And so if those things are triggering for you, if you think that they're going to compound your thinking, unhealthy thinking, please skip this. You're welcome to read the article, which we will link. Uh, it's, It's very thoughtfully done. And I think that avoids those triggers. But we do talk about those things. And then just a word to everybody else. This is an important topic, not just because it's something very personal for me. As a Mormon woman growing up, there's this interesting dynamic where in a patriarchal church, you know, this is like a tangible patriarchy that I grew up in. Like we were taught to revere the patriarchy. The patriarchy is a good word. It wasn't a bad word. In a tangible patriarchy like that, women have soft power. And soft power is still power. Like there's power to navigate our lives and our choices, but it's limited, right? It's soft. It's not hard power. It has has a ceiling, if you will. And the ways in which we do that can often come at great cost and sacrifice to ourselves. In fact, you know, this whole idea of women in Mormonism is tied to polygamy and the idea that sacrifice brings forth the blessings of heaven. The more you sacrifice, the more you give, the more you um, restrict yourself, the greater the blessings. Every time we sacrifice something here on earth, we're like storing it in heaven. And that idea while it can sound like a beautiful religious idea to Mormons, can translate into some really funky things. For me, it translated into extreme issues of control. Unlike the story today, I did not, you know, develop an eating disorder out of fasting or apply any sort of religious dogma to it. It was opposite. Mine, I felt like I was sinning. I felt like it was a shameful thing. But the thing that I recognize in these stories is when you have soft power, when you're a woman who has been taught to dismiss your needs and not even like identify your needs, you know, uh, reading hundreds and hundreds of journals now, Mormon journals of women and sermons of the leaders, there's so much emphasis on the individual doesn't matter. In Mormonism, one of our beautiful things is community, but the, the community, the beehive as a whole matters, not the individual bee. This is especially true for women. and Well, I would say it's true for everybody. Like men in our community don't know how to express our needs, but women especially don't. That's why we have such a huge culture of passive aggressiveness, right? We have women doing really stupid things for control. I remember having a conversation once with my therapist about all the, the games, the the like matriarchs in my family would play when it came to planning just like a family get together and just how overcomplicated it was and all the little factors and how we had to like orchestrate and architect all these complicated things just to have a, you know, family dinner together. And my therapist was just like, ah, you know, that's what happens when women can't express their needs. It comes out sideways. It comes out in all of these ways. And I think that the prevalence of eating disorders in our community. We don't have numbers. It's not well studied, but I know many, 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 many Mormon women and some Mormon men who struggle with disordered eating. And a lot of it has to do with control. I mean, there's this this perception, especially that I had when I, you know, first admitted to myself that there was something wrong with or something disordered with the way that I was thinking about food and my body. And I thought it was vanity, but it wasn't about vanity. It was about control. When so many things outside of yourself feel out of your control, the one thing you can try to control is your eating. And of course, the irony is the more you try to control it, the less control you have. 
gets more out of control, which I think is pretty typical for OCD and addictive behaviors. Often compared the eating disorder to an addiction, you know, an addiction to food. It's different than, you know, chemical dependency, but we do depend on food. And so it's something that it's hard to avoid. But our Mormon community is very familiar with addictive behaviors. You know, we have issues with pornography within our community, compulsive behaviors and repressed behaviors. When we can't speak our needs, when our needs aren't met, when we cannot voice our pain and our feelings, they don't go away. They stay inside of us and they have to come out somewhere. And in high stake religion and in repressed <laughs> repressed cultures like my own, they'll come out, but they come out sideways. And so the goal the work for all of us who grew up in these communities is to make sure that our behaviors, our needs, our desires are being heard, at least by us. It's not that we can accommodate every single feeling and every single desire and need and want we have. That's not real. We live in a world with other people and we do have to compromise and we have to check our own stuff. But I guess if we don't check our own desires and our own pain and our own feelings, they'll come out sideways. And so I think today's story is sort of a cautionary tale about that. And I think it also asks some interesting questions about how much does one give to God? If God gives us this body, how much do we give our body back? Now, I know that that answer would would, um, vary depending on the different fundamentalist or Mormon groups that would be answering that question and the individuals answering that question. I don't know. Something tragic about Mormon theology for me, though, is this idea that men are, that we might have joy, right? That's what our scripture says. We come here to get a body to experience joy in the body, and we spend so much of our time trying to beat joy out of our lives because joy... Often, things that make us feel good makes us feel guilty as Mormons. I don't know if that's how you experience it. I was definitely refusing to acknowledge the things that our bodies feel and think and do. And rather than find, you know, healthy, safe expressions and outlets for those things, we just try to shame and hide them away and sacrifice, (laughs) sacrifice ourselves into oblivion. This is an old common thing for humans. It's a, a lot of our issues and stress are somatic and they come out in our bodies. And um, that's what it was like for me. So if you're out there and you've struggled with disordered eating, I know there are many of you that have men and women. And let me just say something about men. Um, this is this is something that happens to men too. They internalize their struggles with body. They Patriarchy in, in our church has harmed men in unspeakable ways as well. And um, at the end of the day, in a hierarchical patriarchy, only certain men have power and there's this illusion of power and that does some funky things to men, you know, who are told that they can be God someday, but yet they're not. So what's wrong with them? And that comes out in some interesting ways too. So I want to speak to that really quick as well. But anyone that is struggling, I would just encourage you to continue to get some help, um, find a good therapist, find a good nutritionist has been really helpful you can find information at nationaleatingdisorders.org. I'll throw some links in on the, on the website because it's a struggle that many of us have, especially in the community that we grew up in. And, and I got to say, as someone who has been um, having this relationship with food in my body for a long time, it is one of the longest relationships. It's, the longest relationship I've ever had is with my body. And um, it's the, the one thing that's going to be with me as long as I'm here. And, and so it's important that I make some peace with it and reconcile. It's really nice to have moments where I've been able to walk by the mirror and be like, hey, hi, 
we're okay today. And that's what I would like for anyone out there who's struggling. Um, it's hard. It's hard to be in a body, especially as Mormons, where we're disembodied in our theology. We're a spirit and the body is separate and the body is sort of immoral, um, fallen, you know, and um, corrupt and subject to temptation. And the spirit is like, you know, in this vehicle of like chaos and we're supposed to separate the two, but we're not, you know. And so as we talk about the story today, I don't mean to ramble about this. It's just really important to me. As we talk about the story today, I want you to keep all those issues around because, you know, the framing of this is in a religious context, uh, as a good scholar would do. And I also think that for those listening, especially those who are in the group that we're talking about, the Kingston's, the Order, when when you're around this stuff, it's so normalized. So you 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 know give the meaning that you were taught to give to it, right? That this is a righteous act. Fasting is a good sacrifice. It's it's um, a consecration to God. You know, there's something sort of beautiful. But when you step out of that, I I would just I guess I would just ask those from the Kingston group who are listening to try to imagine that maybe there is a different perspective on this kind of stuff. I've had my disagreements with the Kingston group quite publicly, and that's because I believe that a lot of the practices that are normalized are harmful. And I know that that's upsetting to folks in the group who, you know, feel judged or misunderstood or, you know, just feel like it's my wickedness and could be my wickedness. It could be. I'm a very wicked girl. But... I also think that, you know, as another fellow human struggling in this world, in my body, I've learned some things and worked really hard to get different perspectives and healthy perspectives and perspectives that do the least amount of harm. Haven't always been perfect at it, but um, I hope you'll consider looking at this from a different perspective, too, because what we're going to talk about today, I think, is kind of a dangerous practice. Uh, not kind of. It is a dangerous practice, uh, as you will see. So... That is my big, long, messy preamble. It's just so nice to talk to everybody again. I hope you'll enjoy this story. I hope you'll read the article. I hope you'll support Dialogue. It's a, it's a great publication. And please support the podcast. We're still going. I, you know, keeping ser- server fees alive. It's, it's kind of crazy, all the little fees I have to pay now to keep this, this thing online. But this was a labor of love. So uh, I love all of you who have supported me throughout the years. Thanks for sticking with me. It's, it's a joy to be in community with so many of you. And I hope you enjoy this episode. How did I not see this coming? Well, I'm excited to bring back an old friend, often podcast guest to this podcast, Dr. Christina Rossetti. Christina, can you say hello? Hello. Where are you you visiting us from today? Uh, I am in the province of Quebec in the Great White North. She's up there doing some research. Well, that and I'm visiting my boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) You're up there uh, visiting your boyfriend. Well, thank you for making time for this. I wanted to have you on because so fresh off the off the press is your new is your new article in dialogue entitled Fast from That Which Is Not Perfect Food Abstinence and Fasting Cures in the Kingdom of God. 
And I was so excited to see this in print. Not only is it an incredible article, and I'm going to link it here, and I would encourage everyone to to read this after listening to this interview, because you're going to get so much more than just what we're going to talk about today. Uh, There's a lot of history about fasting in general within Mormon context, word of wisdom stuff. But really, this is about uh, a particularly, I would say, peculiar practice in one of the Mormon fundamentalist groups. Uh, We, you know, sort of loosely call them the Kingston group. Um, And if you're not familiar with this group, we've talked about them on the podcast before, the Order, the Kingdom of God, uh, the Davis County Co-op. They go by, you know, plenty of names and nicknames. But Christina, why don't you tell us a little bit about who the Kingstons are first, just as a refresher, or if someone's tuning in for the first time? Yeah, so the Kingstons are, everyone's going to be shocked, uh, based on a family whose last name is Kingston. Um, And they were one of the many, many families excommunicated in the 1920s and the 1930s. Um, And it really begins with the excommunication of a man named Charles Kingston. Um, Charles Kingston was the patriarch of his family, and he was excommunicated for continuing to um, preach polygamy and practice polygamy. Um, He appealed his excommunication. It's actually a really interesting story um, about him. Um, But the, the Kingston's as a kind of new form of Mormonism, a new religious tradition really begins with one of his sons. Um, Charles Kingston's son, Eldon Kingston, um, ends up going away to pray, receiving a vision recorded in the sacred things of the order. It's the name of the document uh, where he recounts a vision of being the church at the end of days. And so from there, this religious tradition one of the main driving forces behind it that is kind of interesting is most people think of Mormon fundamentalism as a religious tradition about polygamy. And that's, of course, the case with the Kingstons. Um, but the Kingstons in the 1930s, especially, were really interested in communitarianism. Um, they tried to go down and unite with the Short Creek community. That ends very poorly. Uh, Jay Leslie Broadbent tells them, no, you can't join. Um, so there's some contention there. Um, but they end up starting their own communal co-opt way of life. Of course, polygamy comes with it. Um, but they start as a communitarian group and um, just go from there. So I want to I want to push back on that point because you'll talk to folks who have left the order, the, the Kingston group, who will say that the official Kingston narrative is that it started off as a co-op, but if, but it was really about polygamy. So there is debate on that. Uh, I mean, do you want to say anything more about where you land on that? Do you think that's one way or the other? Because I've looked into it and I, you know, it's clear now that there is some fudging, I would say, of the institu- their institutional church history, meaning uh, some of the original founders were polygamists while they were starting this, right? So where do you land on that question? Yeah, I mean, I definitely don't want to discount the many people who have left this community. I mean, the incredible women who have been outspoken advocates for a range of causes who've left this community and have spoken against it. I don't want to discount that at all, of course. Um, It is a polygamist religious tradition. There have been well-documented abuses regarding that. My article is really specifically about the early years, the 1920s, 1930s, uh, when and really looking at one woman who we'll talk about, which and I cared about that because when we hear 
the history of Mormon fundamentalism. Usually it's the history told by men. And so I wanted to very specifically tell the history as told by a woman. And in her mind, she was a polygamist, um, but in her mind, she viewed it as a communitarian tradition. Um, and so I think it's worth holding at least holding that intention that there is a history told by a woman where it is about communitarianism and I don't want to diminish her story, which is, does end tragically. And so I, th I think it needs to be held in tension without at all taking away from the experience of people today. Yeah. I think it's interesting that it would even be uh, in, you know, some sort of conflict with each other because we see in a lot of, uh, a lot of Mormon polygamous groups that this I this idea of a co-op or united order order of enoch whatever you want to call it is very much tied into plural doctrine it's it, uh, they pair really well together they're very compatible they have similar roots uh you know stemming back to joseph smith so i think that the unique thing about the kingsons i would say shorthand this is me being not academic or scholarly but I would say uh, they are polygamous fundamentalist Mormon group, but they are probably uh, one of the ones that I know that have a really systematized institutionalized co-op. Like it's a Davis County co-op. They have grocery stores in, I would say similarly in a way that the LDS church used to several decades ago, it's pretty organized there. And I would also say these are polygamists that don't dress like FLDS or AUB. They don't have the garment uh, you know, the long garment. So you will see Kingston folks dressed like normal people most of the time. Normal. It's a weird word to say, but like an average American human. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it is, it is, it, it is hard to say that any Mormon fundamentalist religion doesn't begin with polygamy because this does begin with excommunicated people who were excommunicated for polygamy, who refused to give it up. So in some way, yeah, there is that, of course, with the 1930s, especially the I really don't think we can discount the communitarianism. This is something I've talked about elsewhere. I talk about it quite a bit in my biography coming out about Joseph Musser, Joseph White Musser. The communitarianism can't be discounted because we have to remember that these religions are starting in the middle of the Great Depression. And these are people who've been kicked out of their religion. So they don't, so the church builds their parallel welfare program. You don't get to participate in that if you're an apostate. And you can't like go to the federal government and be like, I need help with my like. 10 wives. And so these are people who are polygamous, but that causes them to be uniquely hit by the poverty of the 1930s. Um, and so communitarianism and all of them in their diaries did talk about that, like, yes, we have to live the law of Abraham, but the law of Enoch has to be lived alongside of it. So a lot of them did see this being a joint requirement that you have to do both at the same time. And so I think both of them are worth addressing. Well, what's funny is we're not even talking about polygamy so much today, other than, you know, it's making it on the podcast because this is a pretty notorious polygamous fundamentalist sect of Mormonism. But your article isn't really about polygamy. It's about word of wisdom and fasting. And so that that's an interesting thing to talk about. But it really is, like you said, the reason why I asked you to come on this podcast is the article features prominently the story of one woman, Orlean. Can you tell us about her? And then let's talk about what made you want to write this article particularly. Yeah. So Orlean um, is named Orlean Harriet Kingston Gustafson. So she was the daughter of Charles Kingston. 
Um, and she was the sister of Eldon Kingston, the founder of the Davis County Cooperative Society. So she plays, she's someone who plays pretty prominently, but in most tellings of the history, at least tellings that you would see, you know, very standard biographies or standard overviews of the Kingston group. She's prominent, but you never hear about her or she's very much in the background. So she's kind of like hangs in the background, but Orlean was excommunicated on September 28th, 1933, uh, one year after her husband was excommunicated for practicing polygamy. Um, she was excommunicated. She was 21 years old, which is very young. And she was charged with apostasy, quote, apostasy from the teaching as set forth by the present authorities of the church and insubordination to church ruling. Um, she has a very typical story that a lot of women who've undergone church discipline might, it might resonate with them. She was not permitted to speak during her disciplinary hearing. She felt very persecuted by the institution that she loved so dearly. But right after her excommunication, she actually has a vision of Joseph Smith. And this is where I first got interested with her. She's excommunicated. And that night she has a vision of Joseph Smith um, in a boat carrying their family safe, safely to the other side. And that he would remain and that Joseph Smith would remain her guide. Orlean spends the rest of her life being very faithful to the religion that her brother founds. And she's particularly faithful to fasting and to food abstinence. Whenever in her diaries, it becomes apparent very quickly that whenever she talks about periods of striving or striving for the Lord, she's talking about fasting. Her fasts were intensive. They were rigorous. She didn't eat for days at a time. She would eat very small amounts of food. She had a really strict food combination guideline. You can't mix fruit with starch. You can't eat any one food until you are full, you have to leave the table hungry. You have to have fruit for supper. You have to have vegetables for dinner. You have to have wheat for breakfast. She had very strict guidelines. And this came alongside really intensive visions where she so, would... So before we get into that, because I want to talk about those, but can you give us a broader, uh, since you are a religion scholar, why fasting? And so in Mormon tradition, I, I of course, come from mainstream. We have fasting. We have... Uh, you know, a fast Sunday, which means once a month we are to fast, uh, and there are different interpretations. In my home, it was only two meals. In some homes, it was 24 hours. The idea is you consecrate that food that you would eat as a sacrifice uh, to to the Lord. Uh, you can even give money that you would have spent on food to the poor. And the idea is that is a commitment to God to to sort of sanctify you, to purify you, to make you more holy, more thoughtful. Um, but what is the larger context of fasting? Yeah, I mean, so fasting has been part of, relig of most religious traditions. Most religious traditions have a fasting practice. Mormonism begins fasting. Uh, Mormon fasting practice really begins in 1832. So really early when Joseph Smith receives a revelation for the saints to pray and fast from this time forth. That's what it says. Uh, and so it, the idea was that the body would be strengthened through fasting, but also the mind. Um, and the current LDS church manuals talk about this, that fasting is good for the body and it is also good for the mind. Um, the current position is that the mind will become quote, more active, um, and then better focus on spiritual things. Uh, this was significant in uh, Mormonism because Mormonism is a faith where the body is 
connected to the spiritual being of the person that you need a body for exaltation. So it would make sense in the 19th century, especially that you have to discipline the body in order to discipline the mind. Um, This was something that the 19th century metaphysical religions generally really cared about. They were intimate. They were very committed to the idea that the mind and the body were a unity um, in a way that's different from historical Christianity somewhat. And so fasting was one of the many ways to make the mind more acute to spiritual things um, by kind of cleansing it of what isn't necessary, of what's kind of gunking up the person. More broadly than that, though, um, fasting has been something, it's an, you know, an ancient tradition. Many mystics used fasting. Um, in the article, I talk about someone who's very dear to me, Catherine of Siena. Uh, St. Catherine of Siena is a early woman mystic who used rigorous food deprivation um, as a source of spiritual insight. It also allowed her to justify food abstinence. She subsisted at the end of her life on the Eucharist alone, um, which is something that a lot of women mystics in the medieval world did. And so it it was kind of viewed as a way of being closer to God um, and solely focusing on the spiritual thing. So I think Mormonism is very similar to kind of ancient practices. It does change it somewhat by doing the allowance for giving money to the poor that you would normally spend on food um, and having it once a once a month is a uniquely Mormon thing. Like fast Sunday is not found in like. Is there a connection with like gender? Is it a gendered thing? Because, you know, in the mainstream LDS church, we all fast. It was considered genderless in the sense that, you know, we all do it. But in the Kingston's, as we're going to find out, it's more female specific. And maybe this is a good time to talk about how we even first heard this story. We were talking to one of our good friends, Jeremy Tucker, who has been on the podcast. He, of course, has a pretty dramatic story of how he left the order. And, you know, he's a dear friend of ours. And so because we honor and believe his story, that sometimes puts us at odds with members of the Kingston community who feel like, you know, that they're being, you know, vilified or whatever. But Jeremy has a pretty harrowing story. And so do a lot of folks who have left the order. And this was one of them. When I heard the story, it was like a horrifying story of this uh, almost torture. Like it didn't sound like the fasting that I grew up with, which was when you're like a nine-year-old kid and you're not allowed to eat for 24 hours, that sucks. But this is a lot more extreme. So is do you know of anything with gender? Is it a gendered thing? Um, in the Kingston specifically, or in, I mean Just I think it, so in fasting in general, there's there have been a lot of arguments to be made for it being gendered in the medieval ages. There's a great book by a woman named Carolyn Walker Bynum called Holy Feast, Holy Fast, which is about women mystics and the body um, and how fasting was a way for women to participate in ascetic practices. One of the interesting things that I don't think a lot of people know is that the that Mormonism fasting on Sunday to, the, to most of Christianity is very weird because Christians are not allowed to fast on Sunday. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, we're not allowed to. Every Sunday is a mini Easter, which is a, a fast, um, a feast day. So you're not supposed to fast on feast days. Uh, and so, like the idea of Mormonism fasting on Sunday is kind of something that's a little peculiar. But the rest of most people will fast for pretty extended periods of time during Lent, during Advent, during the Apostles' fast, etc. And that is universal in Christianity. That it is a practice that men and women both do. There's some 
argument to be made that some women mystics especially were more attuned to it, but the hermit tradition had many men who were participating in very rigorous fasts that wasn't necessarily always gendered. Now, within this case, within the Kingston case, uh, my argument certainly is that this practice that we're going to talk about really does begin with the woman. Um, I make the argument up front that I stand by that had Orlean been a man, she would have been a prophet. I think much of the kind of interesting visionary experiences, the disciplines of the body within the contemporary Kingston community do come from her, not her brother. Her brother actually interestingly tried to get her to stop uh, multiple times and she refused, which is an, another interesting way that women kind of maneuver within Mormon spaces that her, her prophet told her to stop it. And she wrote in her diary, no, thanks. I'm going to listen to God instead of you. And that's something that, again, a lot of Mormon women um, have had experiences similar to that. Um, but to answer your question, we first kind of learned about a practice. It's called the 42-day fast. Um, at one point, it was called the 42-day period of striving. And it is exactly what you would imagine. It is a 42-day period of fasting. When we first heard about it, it was something that was kind of surprising. And we heard about it in the context of people dying from doing this practice. Yeah. I mean, I didn't believe it. I was like, there 42 days, like that's not possible. And, and for, to give people a sense of what it is, it is 42 day periods of fasting, but what it is, is it's one week dry. So it's one week with no food or water, one week with water alone, two weeks with grape juice, and then 30 days at least, and that at least is in quotes on um, like raw fruit or vegetable. That's what it initially was. Today, the raw food and vegetable component is viewed more of as a way of breaking the fast because this is something, and I, I want to be very clear with people, that this is something you can die from and not only die from the fasting component, but if you come off of that too quickly, if you do not break that fast safely, you'll die from that as well. And this is, I don't, I also don't, we're not promoting this in any way. Like you should not go without food for this amount of time. Yeah. And, and so after we talk about Orlean's story, I want to, you know, I want to talk more about the context of eating disorders in high demand religions and, and the pressure that women have. Because to me, when I heard the story, I was like, oh, it's a fast. It's just, uh, you know, like a lot of people do with religion, we take our disorders and we sanctify them. <laughs> we, we put theology around it. But why don't you tell us Orlean's story, and then let's give it the context and how Orlean saw it, how folks in the order see it first, and then we can kind of break it down. Does that sound good? Yeah. So, uh, Orlean, one of the so when I first started reading Orlean's diaries, um, I was not aware that she was connected to this practice at all. She was just a woman from the community whose diaries I had a copy of, and that was. In Interesting to me because we never really hear about the women of the early years. We there really aren't many circulating diary, full diaries of women who were foundational to the movement, to the fundamentalist movement. And so I started reading her diaries really early in her life. Um, you know, she's excommunicated at 21. Um, she suffers a miscarriage. And from the, her miscarriage, she starts to have visions about her body. And that is something that, you know, her body becomes a primary vehicle of her religious practice. And when something goes wrong with her body, then she, she starts to kind of see it as something wrong with her spiritual life. And so she begins to receive visions on how to eat correctly to amend her spirit and hopefully amend her body. You know, unfortunately she's not able to get pregnant again. She does miscarry several times. 
Um, but she starts to see what a correct way of living should be. Now, this was something that, like I mentioned, she was disciplined by her leaders for, but some other women in the community kind of become interested in what Orlean is doing, especially because of the visions that she is having. And then this all kind of takes, it, it becomes more and more intense. It becomes more and more, she becomes really fixated on her diet. She starts writing about it all the time. And kind of in the middle of her life, she records a very specific idea. Uh, she's talking about young people who are interested in joining the order. Because at this point, there is slowly gaining interest. Uh, and she says, quote, we must be careful who comes and joins the order. They must be willing to make sacrifices and strivings of the Lord. This is the method always been used to get knowledge from the Lord. Moses spent two 40-day periods fasting and praying. Jesus spent 42 days striving. Now, when I saw the 42, that's when I got really interested because most people will be familiar with the story of Jesus spending 40 days in the desert. I don't know where she gets 42 days from. Someone might. Uh, but when I saw the 42, that was a kind of a instant click of she clearly has something to do with this contemporary practice. Um, and this becomes something that she attempts multiple times throughout her life. There are some debates over how Orlean dies. Orlean tragically dies very, very young. Some people say that she dies breaking one of her fasts, that she breaks it too quickly. Um, and she tragically dies from that. But she spends a lot of time trying to perfect this fast. Um, now, one of the interesting connections that I found from this is a 42-day period of no food or water just food. And then grape juice was actually really trendy uh, in the 1930s and 40s. There was something called the grape cure, uh, which was, was going to be a cure-all. It was going to cure your cancer. It was going to cure your asthma. It was going to cure the common cold. You just had to drink grape juice for 42 days. Now, of course, again, a lot of people died from that. Um, but it becomes very apparent that when we think of the food, this particular practice in the Kingston community, it was not one of the men in power who first developed it. It was most certainly Orlean. In her terms of her memory, I think it's important to know how she's remembered. And she's remembered as 2.1. And I kind of hate that about her life. And you, can, Yeah. Will you explain what that means? Yeah. Uh, so in terms of another part of her legacy that I want to note, um, she doesn't talk a lot about polygamy in her diaries, but she is certainly remembered as a polygamist woman. Kingston's practice a tradition called the numbered men, and all men receive a number. Well, maybe not all, but many men receive a number, um, and it does represent your authority. Orlean's husband was number two in the community, and she would use these numbers when she would talk about her family. So she, there's one quote where she says, quote, I prayed twice for strength, spiritual strength, when it seemed as though two came home from one's place with a bowl of food appearing like candy. That was in a dream that she had. Two was her husband. One is Eldon, um, her brother. And so today, one of the things that is interesting and tragic, depending on how you look at it, is that Orlean's grave says 2.1. She was the first wife of number two, and her sister wife would have had 2.2. Um, and so polygamy is something that she doesn't really talk about, but it certainly is part of her memory and that her, and that she's, her memory is part of her marriage to a man who had a number. She, as a woman, she would have not received a number and been seen in, in the hierarchy of authority, 
but that's also definitely part of her legacy and her memory is being a polygamist wife. I appreciate you saying that just because I thought it was interesting if you go in, especially in like the Bountiful Cemetery or some of the Davis County cemeteries, prominently featuring Kingston burials, you'll see these little numbers on it. And again, the men are the the one, two, three, four, five, and the wife are four point whatever number they are. And it's kind of this interesting numbering system, which, you know, some some current members will deny happens, but it's absolutely concretized in a lot of their headstones. So yeah, um, I appreciate you bringing that up. I'm, I'm interested in this idea of Orlean. Now, just for those who maybe are tuning in for the first time, if you don't understand anything about this group, understand that the Kingston name is very, very important. The brothers who start this are basically the originators of this of this new church. Their names and their legacy are really important. And her being a sister of them is a huge part of that. So like Christina says, had she have been a man, she would have been a prophet. But because she's not a man, you know, it's <laughs> she's sort of discounted in this way. But talk to me about how uh, why the men are not encouraging this behavior. Because this seems like, uh, you know, this sort of hyper vigilance, this scrupulosity, religiosity, what do you want to call it, is often rewarded in these communities. Yeah, I mean, one of the, I mean, first of all, she was getting very ill from this practice. And that was something that very much concerned her brother. On multiple occasions, her brother told her to stop. And on multiple occasions, she said no. Not necessarily to him, but she certainly came home and said, Eldon Eldon talked to me about this. Oh, well. Um, And had kind of a nonchalant attitude about um, her spiritual leader. That's something that does follow. There's a lot, there is a a long tradition of spiritual fathers and spiritual directors telling women to stop fasting or to stop doing certain practices and women not doing that. Francis of Assisi was really known for telling certain religious women to stop (laughs) doing certain things that were harmful to their bodies. And those women kind of just being like, meh. And if you're going to write off St. Francis of Assisi, who most people are familiar with, you know, what's a woman writing off? Someone that many of us have not heard about. That was really common. The other thing that I found really interesting um, that I really want to note is during the progressive era, which this period is part of that, fasting was a man's practice. It was not something women did. Uh, Between 1890 and 1930, the people who were most associated with fasting, whether it be religious or whether it be for diet, were men. Being able to fast was a demonstration of virility. It was a demonstration of success. Um, It was a demonstration of being a, quote, real man, if you could fast for a long period of time. Uh, What is interesting in the gendered component is that because of that, men in the progressive era were never pathologized. Um, And that was something I wanted to be very careful of is that many people would read her diaries and call her an anorexic or kind of write her off as just an anorexic. But no, certainly no one would have done that to any of the men in the progressive era who were doing as strict a fast as she was. Um, And so there is a really important thing to be said about that she was being stopped for this practice because many women in this time were pathologized for their religion. Uh, Women, Many women have always been pathologized for their religious practice. But had it been her, one of her brothers doing it, I don't think there would have been an attempt to stop him. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because when I heard it, I, that's what I thought. You know, of course, I've been very open and public about my struggles with my eating disorder. 
And of course, mine is tied to sort of OCD behaviors. It's a, it's a control thing. And and so when I heard the story of fasting, it was like, oh, this is this is about control. This is about her trying to control her internal environment with her external. She feels out of control in her body. And so, you know, and I'm sure that that's tied into it, but I think you're right. Also, during the Great Depression, people were starving. Part of the co-op was sharing food. So I think that that's an interesting component that plays into it as well. And there, I think there is this idea and it's a sort of dichotomy that women have to face where whenever you see studies of communities where there's people are starving, often the men will die first because they give up food so the women and children can survive. So women are expected to like nourish their bodies. Yeah, I think that I think that there probably is a double standard and then add into it her issues with infertility in a polygamous community where children are such an important part of the doctrine. It's all very complicated. Oh yeah, and I mean she her her sister wife um did have additional children. Um and so and that was something that was difficult for Orlean and something that she notes several times in her diaries and it was a point of contention. It was especially a point of contention when Orlean tried to get her sister's children to eat her way, food generally became a sore spot within this within the community. One of the interesting things, though, today is there there are remnants of her practice that still exist. In a, in addition to the forty two day fast, you know, we've talked to people who've left who've kind of talked and spoken about lack of spices, etc., in the food. When I've talked to people who are still faithful, um, they've mentioned that among her family, especially, many of these practices still exist. But Orlean was the first in the community, the very first in the community, not her brothers. It was solely her to reveal um, that salt, honey, and milk should be voided at all costs by members of the Davis County Cooperative Society. And she called this a word of what she thought that this believed that this was a more expanded word of wisdom diet, um, that a very base level word of and very similar to how fundamentalism operates generally, how there's, you know, the, the law, and then there's the higher law, um, that Orlean saw herself creating a higher word of wisdom, or at least having a higher word of wisdom revealed to her. Um, and in doing this, she was, the title of the paper comes from a saying that she said that by doing this, you will, um, your fasting will make you perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And so she thought that this was how all saints should eventually live, um, she's just the first to experiment with it on her own body. Yeah. I, you know, I was thinking the other day, Virginia Kearns, we've talked to her, we've talked about the books um, that she wrote about Sally Kanosh and this idea of colonization. And there's, there's often this joke that white people don't like spices, right? That they can't handle spicy things. And that's actually an exact symptom of being a colonizer because the idea was spices, spicy foods came from hot areas where white people did not originate from, uh, desert areas, and you needed hot, hot peppers to preserve your food. And so um, so that was part of it. But also when white people came to, uh, you know, populate and intrude on native areas, there was gamey food that they didn't like the taste of. And so the idea was to take the taste out of it. If you could take the natural taste out of things and have it as bland as possible, then that was considered civilized. So, I, you know, I've been thinking about that in the context of Mormonism and our weird food rules. 
and wondering if, you know, it's a symptom of being like a frontier people where we, you know, just want everything to be bland. But I think in the Kingston case, it's really specific in the sense that like honey and salt, things that are native to Utah, they want to take out of the diet. And it's almost to me, it's, it just reads a scrupulosity. But again, you as a religious scholar, you're taking her religious ideas seriously. You're putting them in the context of other religion. So how do you interpret her adding all these new rules? What is that like? How does that make sense to you? Yeah. So, I mean, like I mentioned, this was a time where the grape cure, I mean, cures in general, fasting as a food cure um, were really trendy. And this is something we still see today. I mean, people spend thousands of dollars to go to Costa Rica to just drink water for a month. Many of them die or at least go to the hospital for it. People, this is something people do. Um, today, it is something that is part and parcel of many new age spiritualities. Um, and a lot of that was really beginning in the 1930s and 40s. I mentioned the grape cure, other things that become really trendy around this time. As we're getting out of the depression, a lot of people have been subsisting on bread and milk for years. And we start to see a slow move toward people being concerned with processed foods. Have you ever heard someone concerned with processed foods, Lindsay? Maybe. Yes. Yes, we know a few. Yeah. Processed foods become something really worrisome. We often, you know, this is often jokingly referred to as people who are kind of crunchy or um, just worried about toxins or all of those things. But worry about processed foods become something really common. This is something Orlean really believes. This is something that she sees around her and she adopts as a religious principle. Um, she specifically refers to that foods should only be eaten in their unrefined states. Um, and because of this, things like milk is out. Things like butter is out. Things like cheese is out. Bread out. Anything that is that has to go some undergo some kind of refining process. Um, now, in Orlean's diaries, it's spiritualized. But one of the really interesting things about her is we can read it as something uniquely Mormon, but we can also read it as her making religious something that ever was just really trendy at the time. Um, a lot of people today don't eat gluten. If I don't eat gluten as a Catholic, I could very easily talk about it as this Catholic thing I do. Uh, and so Orlean was taking a lot of the really restrictive dietary practices most associated with men and making them Mormon. So talk to us about this 40 day, 42 day fast. You've talked about how Orlean practiced it, but after, well, finish maybe her story, what happens with her. And then we'll talk about the legacy of this fast. Uh, so Orlean tragically dies very young. She's excommunicated from the church in, uh, when she was 21 years old. She dies at 44. She's very young. Um, and she dedicated her entire life, the entire end of her life to this practice and to the belief that uh, Latter-day perfection is not just something about the spirit and the soul, but also something about the body. And ensuring that people would refrain from unnatural foods and participate in long fasts. Um, now, again, I want to note that this wasn't something torturous to her. She did talk significantly about suffering. Of course, if you're fasting for this long and for the immense time that she was fasting, it's going to be painful. Um, but I do think it's important to hold intention that 
um, her visions become really prominent for this. And this is something historically that we see. So she's not an anomaly in that sense. Um, and today she's remembered in this way. So she institutes this 42-day practice. I don't know if she ever completed it in her life. But now at the end, if we look today at the fasting practices, one of the reasons why this was so difficult initially to read about um, is that when you read about the the fasting practices in the Kingston community, um, they are pretty rigorous. Um, So for example, um, in the by 1941, fasting practices generally had been highly incorporated into the Kingston community. And in one of the documents about fasting, it talks about, it says, quote, Brother Eldon talked about fasting in the first of the order. He likened our bodies to a blacksmith shop. Well, Eldon wasn't the first. So that was kind of strange to me. And then I talked about how John Ortel Kingston, his successor, quote, fasted for an extended period at least once a year. Others talked about how Charles W. Kingston, Orlean's father, cited fasting for his very long life. Um, They talk about, and then the instructions, there's all these charts and there's these outlines and they specifically mention one week dry, one week with water, two weeks grape juice, 30 days with on raw food. And nowhere, nowhere in those instructions is Orlean. And that was kind of the difficulty is that her legacy is of fasting is absolutely in the tradition, um, but her name never is mentioned. So after she dies, and do we know exactly what the cause of death is? Because my understanding when we heard the story didn't wasn't the story that Orlean died of the fasting. Um, so I've heard I've heard different things. I've heard some people say she just died. Her death record is very vague, and then I have heard from from someone who left that she died breaking a fast. I'm inclined to believe she died breaking one of her fasts, but I don't know. And I, what's interesting is the, when everything is eventually incorporated, Orlean was likely still alive when things become incorporate, when her beliefs become incorporated into the religious tradition without her name being applied to them. It very much is centered on her brother, her father, and the successor to, and Ortel. So to carry it forward, I guess this is a good seg because there are rumors and stories that, you know, in the modern day and age that people have died from this fast. People are still doing it. Women are still doing it. And it's tricky because we're we're purely speculating in the sense that we've heard rumors, we've talked to folks. I've talked to a police officer who investigated a death uh, of a Kingston member and you know, it's it's really tricky because there's a lot of secrecy. There's a lot of fear from the government. Uh, the Kingston's listening to this, I know, are not going to be happy with this. They're going to say that we've misrepresented this. But there are some causes of death that seem to be surrounding alleged neglect or starvation or alleged abuse, things like that. So it's really hard to tell how some some folks die in this group, but you've heard the stories too, right? That people have allegedly died from this. Uh, So for this article, I um, am really grateful to have interviewed someone who left the Davis County Cooperative Society. And he recounted growing up in a culture of very strict fasting. Um, He talked about how he would joke about how LDS people only fast for one day and how easy their fasts are and and very kind of this idea of, well, they're just the lower law. Um, But he also recounts tragically his paternal grandmother dying 
from this fast. She was suffering from a terminal illness. And instead of having her go to the doctor, she did this fast. Um, This practice that was used in Orlean's life and after as something that was going to cure people. It would cleanse the body. It would cleanse the soul. Um, One of the ideas that she talks about is that digestion, and this is something that exists outside of Mormon fundamentalism, outside of the Kingstons. Um, This is something that a lot of like breatharians talk about. This is something that um, people who do like 80-10-10, people who do like a lot of kind of these new diets, I'm just like naming diets as though people should know. Uh, but people who do like 80, 10, 10 is like, you're supposed to eat 80% fruit of your diet. Um, and so a lot of people will just eat watermelon, for example. And in doing that, the idea that they would have is that if your body is not busy digesting food, it can be busy doing other things. Now that is not how bodies work. Your body is always dealing with digestion. Um, but the theory is that if your body's not digesting, it can heal up. It can be busy doing other things. And so the idea is if you're ill or if you have a terminal illness or something like that, if your body isn't busy digesting, it can be busy allocating resources and energy to healing your cancer, things like that. Now, I want to be clear that that is pseudoscience. That is not medically accurate, but that's something that would have likely influenced Orlean's thinking. Um, And we see that here in this account of someone whose um, paternal grandmother had cancer. And the idea was that a fasting could be a potential cure, not only of a spiritual benefit, but also of a temporal benefit. And I think that's something that the mainstream LDS church has moved away from, that the LDS church kind of talks about fasting as spiritual, but I don't think they talk about it as like bodily anymore, like good for your body. Yeah, no, um, I think that that's shifted too. As, you know, nutritional culture has has shifted. I know, again, I'm speaking from mainstream LDS perspective. I didn't understand nutrition uh, when my disorder developed. I was a teenager and it was really at a time when I was uncomfortable in my body. I felt a lot of pressure to look a certain way, but I think there's a misconception that eating disorders are about vanity. At least in my culture, it was. It was seen as a sin of vanity, right? I just wanted to be pretty. But really, to me, it was about control. It was about, um, I would say, rather than, than you know, looking at people who want to get thin to look good, it's more about uh, making your insides match your outsides. You want to disappear. You want to make yourself smaller. You want to feel like you have some control over this body that feels so out of control. And then you throw in these weird, I would say, whatever conflicting nutritional ideas you have. And for me at the time, it was like growing up in the 80s and 90s, it was slim, fast culture and uh, fat-free everything culture. So that's how I understood nutrition. But I know in a lot of these fundamentalist cultures, everything is organic or raw or homemade or not processed. There's a lot of homeopathic, you know, ideas and solutions. And so I think that that's probably how this group has filtered that. I mean, you know, Brian Buchanan and I for the Sunstone Mormon History Podcast did a presentation at Sunstone this last summer about uh, enema culture in Mormonism, in early Mormonism. And we had some folks from the order there being like, stop talking about this like it's an old frontier practice. We still do it. And one kid said very like proudly, we put garlic in ours because it cl- it cleans you out. And I think that they're there are multiple examples of this within different fundamentalist culture. Even the Kingstons, you and I have talked about this before, but their green drink, the idea that you can drink comfrey and all these other things to sort of apocryphally stave off radiation from nuclear war in the last days. We have all of these ideas that, like you said, 
are in the popular zeitgeist and then sort of get filtered in through a religious lens. Yeah. And I think also something that is interesting that we're seeing now is the reverse of it, that practices that were traditionally viewed as religious are becoming mainstream. Um, I mean, how many people do you know do intermittent fasting? It's very popular. I was thinking about that when we talked about it. Like it's now it's considered a healthy thing. People will say their doctors recommended it. And I would also add most people I know who do intermittent fasting are men. I mean, if I wasn't eating until two o'clock every day and working out frantically on an empty stomach in the morning, I think that would be, I mean, a lot of people would pathologize that, but it is interesting that now there has been a shift where we are seeing more men participate in fasting practices, religious or not, um, mostly outside of that, especially in like bodybuilding culture. And that is not to say that men historically have not also had eating disorders, but I think we are seeing a lot of that right now of intermittent fasting being really trendy. And so this idea that Orlean or any woman who was fasting for religious reasons would have been strange. Well, you just have to go to the CrossFit gym down the street and you can meet a lot of people doing this. Well, and let's talk about something else that I think is interesting too, is the, the uh, vision, the visionary component to it, because the Bible is interesting because you have, you have different parts throughout the Bible when they talk about starvation. And, you know, I think Paul talks about how that when the Gentiles were starving, they became unruly and wicked and having these, these terrible hallucinations or whatever. But yet with fasting, when you when your brain is not burning those calories and your body starts shutting down and you do enter states of psychosis, which we know can happen through different uh, methods of starvation, we call them visions. So what is Orlean experiencing and what is the hope when people are doing this, what I consider to be a dangerous and should be like unethical practice. What what are people hoping to get out of this? So, I mean, Orlean had different experiences with it. Like I mentioned, one of her very first recorded visions, which I I call both visions and revelations in her in the article. Um, the very first one she has is of Joseph Smith leading her family in the restoration that he's still their prophet, that they're the true saints. She then has visions or revelations um, about having a child. So one of them, for example, she says, quote, last night I dreamed that for nine months I ate soaked wheat mixed with whole wheat flour with milk on, with milk for breakfast, some raw vegetables for dinner and fresh fruit for supper. At the end of the time, my fourth baby was born. She came within 15 minutes of the first warning without any pain. It seemed like it was easy to eat this way. A fourth baby never came for Orlean. Much of her visions were food related to solve her temporal ills or to solve her temporal problems. And in some ways you can, of course, read that as having dreams that justify what she's currently doing. She also had, she had another vision that accompanied her talking to her brother where her brother tells her to stop. So she talks to her brother in one instance, and it was the first time that she spoke with her brother Eldon about her diet. And he tells her that you need to drink milk. You need to be eating more than you're eating. Um, you need to be eating like the others. Like that was a very specific call for her is you need to be drinking milk or eating like everyone else. And that night she has a dream um, and she had a dream of a 4th of July parade. And in the dream, she felt the impression that she should not participate in the parade. It was fine for the others to do the parade, but she was of course not like the others. And she says, quote, 
thinking about this dream, I got up and I felt well again, except that my head still ached. I prayed and told the Lord I understood and would try and do it right. I knew that I had done wrong by taking more milk. I knew that I had done wrong by taking the milk. Um, and she, through her visions, her visions confirm that she's special. She's not like the others in the order, that she's called to live something higher. She's called to live something different, even if it means going against her priesthood leaders. Yeah, I appreciate you putting it in that context because on this podcast, it's interesting because we have such a wide audience of folks who have never, you know, who think Mormons are interesting or fascinating or weird, who tune in or people who have left, who have a lot of, you know, frustrations, valid critiques and concerns with these practices. And then we have believers, including fundamentalists. And it's hard to hold space for all of those different beliefs. I try to respect everyone's belief, but as someone who's been in eating disorder recovery my whole life, almost, you know, a large portion of my life, it's really hard to hear this stuff because it's so clearly mirrors how I saw things. So I'll just give you an example. This is not related to food, but I remember early on um, in the first decade of my marriage, I would have what, you know, mental health experts would call panic attacks or anxiety attacks. And I would believe that they, it was Satan because I didn't have, you know, any access at the time to good mental health and things like that. And so I believed it was the devil or demons trying to upset me. And so we would try to fix these anxiety attacks with priesthood blessings. And now that, you know, I have access to therapy and things like that, it's it's almost strange to think about. But I, I see that in this story. So it's hard for me to be pluralistic about this. It's hard for me to say, oh, you know, this is this beautiful mystical experience because I've been in recovery for so many years. And I think, oh, it's just... When you when you fixate on these things and your in your brain obsesses about food and you start to pay attention to your body, but you're and you're getting signals and signs, but you've rewired the meanings. And I remember, you know, I'm not gonna trigger our audience with anorexic thinking, but your brain as an anorexic can really twist things and you can interpret certain signals where hunger feels good and, and things like that. So I hear her doing that, and it's just so tragic to me. And yet I also, the Mormon part of my brain, the spiritual part of my brain, the part that remembers what this faith feels like, understands how she got there and understands why people still do it. And and it's almost this idea that's very inherent in Mormonism, which is sacrifice brings forth the blessings of heaven. The more it hurts, the better it is, the more you're consecrated to God. And that's anorexic thinking, this idea of... um what is it? What is that terrible anorexic idiom? Like nothing looks as good as skinny feels or something. That's the same thing. It's just this idea. Like if it hurts you, then it's good for God. And I think it's just such a dangerous idea. I think that's also what makes, I mean, it's so different from, so for listeners, I fast frequently, not frequently, but it's kind of a, What's so interesting about the differences for those who like aren't familiar with other religious traditions is that, you know, one of the jokes is that a Catholic fast, are you ready, Lindsay, for what a Catholic fast is? No, tell me what, <laughs> obviously not on Sunday, because that's no. when you feast. But if you fast, you're, you get to have one regular meal and two small meals that together do not equal a full meal, because the point is not pain. The point is a sacrifice, but the point is not pain. Now, of course, there are mystics and there are 
um, monastics who fast more rigorously, but for the average person, you get one meal and then two small, they're called collations, two small meals that don't equal a full meal because the point isn't pain. And when people fast for extended periods, like for Lent, you fast 40 days for Lent. But for me, um, that means that I, during Lent, I don't eat dairy. I don't eat meat anyway in my normal life, but I don't eat dairy. I don't drink alcohol during Lent, but then, you know, the, like if it's not Lent, it's not Advent. I eat a lot of dairy. And so it ends up being a kind of a temperate way, I guess, of living life where like, yeah, I drink and I have cheese quite frequently, just not during Lent and Advent. And so it does kind of create moderation, but pain was is not the point, I guess. And, and so hearing that it, it is a very kind of different way of thinking about how bodies operate and how sacrifice is supposed to operate that can you have sacrifices if they're not painful? Like, I would say, of course you can. Yes, like, of course it, you can. It's a very Mormon idea, though, that ties it back into polygamy, right? Like, the whole the whole justification for many years you see in Frontier Diaries and early women who are, like, pioneering this practice, if you will, is sacrifice. The more it breaks your heart, the more it refines you. It's a refiner's fire. And I think that... You know, I was taught that that was a beautiful principle, but ultimately that did damage to my mental and physical health. And so it's it's a really hard one for me to to get on board for. But that's one of the things I really respect about your writing and your scholarship. As a religious studies scholar, you take uh, beliefs seriously. Um, you put them in the context of other beliefs because, again, if Orlean, you put a few centuries on her. She might have been considered this incredible mystic, you know, who did these these beautiful things and had these beautiful visions. But I hear it now and I'm horrified by it. Yeah, I mean, and that's why I brought I I included uh, Catherine of Siena in the article. I mean, Catherine is my patron. Um, for those who don't know, now you know too much about me. Catherine's my patron. And I fully recognize that Catherine is someone who has been deeply pathologized um, throughout history. Um, as I mean, there are there's an eating disorder named after her um, pathology, and um, she likely died from her lack of food. But she, I mean, she's someone who's very dear to me, and that recognition was really important. That I love Catherine of Siena dearly, and would very and I, while of course recognizing the suffering that she went through, likely. Um, she didn't talk about it very often in terms of like a suffering kind of way. While I love her dearly, why would I look at Orlean as crazy? Like I can't yeah. love Catherine of Siena and think that Orlean Kingston is crazy. For me, it's hard to not look at her with my lens of sort of frustration at this group and some of their, what I see dangerous abusive practices, especially towards women. So to me, you know, it's hard for me to not pity her, but I think that your article uh, is respectful. It's, um, it again is, is generous in the sense that it honors her story and her voice in the way that, um, we honor the voices of any other woman in a religious tradition. And I think that that's challenging for people who don't want to take Mormon fundamentalism seriously. But if you don't take Mormon fundamentalism seriously, I think you're discounting the experiences, um, and the real lives of thousands of people many of them who we know who to to them this is very real it's concrete and uh orlean's legacy is important to them so what what is your takeaway what would your takeaway be to listeners who 
maybe think that it's dangerous to even take her seriously? And what would you say to fundamentalists who say you're not being respectful enough? Uh, Also, for the former, um, that was something that I struggled with a lot in this article was how to how I mean, how to talk about the Kingstons generally in a way that honors my honors people who've survived, honors Herb and also is true to my ethics of not kind of glorifying traditions that I think are dangerous. I do. And one of the reasons I wanted to write this was when we talk about the bodily practices of the Kingston community, very often that's relegated to discussions of incest, which I note very upfront, relegated to discussions of eugenics, which I note upfront. And what happens when we think about how women participate in the tradition? Most of the cases of incest, most of the cases of eugenics, the discussion focuses on Orlean's brother and her family. And so what do those practices look like for, and what do bodily practices look like for women? And so I think there's a, I think there's a way of talking about both and having to think through that some, that these traditions for us, of course, are not traditions we're part of, um, are traditions that we know survivors of, but also there's something keeping people from keeping people staying. Um, and in today's contemporarily, there is a lot of fear, of course, could Orlean have been bound by that? Possibly. But I think there was more to her story. And I think it's worth telling that. Um, for people who are fundamentalists who are listening, I think Orlean is an important case of the significance of keeping women's records as part of the historical record in the community to create a fuller picture of how these traditions started. Um, she has one great line that I think a lot of people who are LDS or fundamentalists will listen to it and we'll hear it as a revelation. We'll hear it. There's so many buzzwords in it that they'll hear it and be like, that's wild. So after she talks to her brother, another time, her brother is like, Arlene, stop it. And she writes, quote, this is the key, the key to the word of wisdom. It has been given to me. Now I can take it and use it and receive help. Thank you, Father in heaven, that you have seen fit to bestow upon me this wonderful knowledge and help me to put aside the worldly things that I may gain the health and strength and hidden treasures of knowledge, which is promised therein. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Arlene very much, I mean, would she have called herself a prophet? Probably not. But including the very real mystical experiences of women in these communities is something that adds a much fuller picture of what this religion is. Um, We would not have a full and complete picture of Mormonism if we didn't have accounts of Emma Smith. Um, And we really wouldn't have a, we don't have a full and complete picture of the Apostolic United Brethren, unless we include Rhea Allred, um, when we don't have a full picture of the Kingstons, unless we include Orlean. Well, I appreciate that. And as you're thinking, I was, I was thinking my takeaway for both critics and believers in this is gosh, couldn't there be a way where we could honor the religious expressions, the spiritual expressions of women in their joy rather than in their pain, rather than in their sacrifice? Like that, that to me would be the way. Um, if you're in the the order, like get creative with that. I would encourage you to do that. Let's find ways to honor women's closeness with God that doesn't ask for their heart to break or their body to break. You know, that's something that I think Mormonism is still struggling with and grappling with as a patriarchal tradition. And I don't think it's going to be resolved anytime soon, but wow, it would have been nice if we could have been taught ways to experience God in our joy, um, not just in our sorrow. And I know a lot of Mormons will be like, it's not like that. We're, you know, we're, we experience God in gratitude and in sunsets and all of that. 
Yeah, I guess. But not, not, I mean, there's something so tragic about this whole thing. So anyway, I would encourage everyone to read this article. It's, I'm so glad that you published it because it's not just the story of Orlean. It's not just the story of this fasting. You get a lot of good history, not just on the Kingston group, but also that but on word of wisdom and fasting. And um, I was just really, really impressed, like I always am with all the work that you're doing. So thank you for doing this work. Thanks so much. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.